you two say your names and I'll introduce the show and then I'll ask you if you have anything to plug. All right. This is why I do it this way, so there's this awkward silence where you, where you can't decide who goes first. Topic Lords. Hello, I'm Kev Zettler. I'm Quill. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Kev, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yes, I'm currently working on a book educational course on graphics programming and shader programming specifically in webgl so if you're interested in that follow me on twitter at kev zettler and hopefully i make the deadline and ship the book but no promises so so this is something that's going to ship all at once it's not like you're releasing a chapter at a time i can't go read chapter two right now I will have to deliver all the chapters, but I think there will be a drip campaign of individual chapters once they're released. Okay. Quill. Hi. Quill, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I can't think of anything to plug. I guess I'm a software engineer for a company called The Canary. Uh, Canary with a K. We do personal privacy software. What's an example of personal privacy software? So the main product that we have, essentially you provide it with some personal information that you want removed from the internet, addresses, phone numbers, things like that, and then we just scrape the internet and then remove things from different websites. Like you hack in. You could help somebody hide like a DUI record or something, you know? I'm not sure about that, mostly because I'm not sure if those are like public information. Usually what we're trying to remove information from are data brokers that are trying to like sell people's information for things like advertising. I see. Yeah, last time I made internet people mad, they looked me up by, via my uh, DNS records for twinbeard.com. And luckily, those records are incredibly out of date. It was like six moves ago. But uh, now that I have a, um, a much more unique name, I bet finding my real address would be trivial. Ever since I had a kid, I've started to like cool it on pissing off internet people <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually curious during the period of your life when you were kind of the center of an ARG did you ever have anyone like kind of overstep a boundaries no the closest thing that happened there was actually my own fault which was I gave my business card to someone at an ARG related meetup uh, I, I met some ARG players. This was the time I was uh, kidnapped by time travelers. And they actually checked with me whether or not they should share this card with the rest of the ARG because it had my phone number on it. Did they share it? Uh, no, they didn't because I told them that there's no information on the card that isn't already there. It was definitely like more me overstepping my own boundaries than uh, someone else doing it. Jim, can I ask what kind of beef you had that people started tracking down your home address? No, I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to get into that. I don't want to rile them up again. It was a an uh, an internet guy with a spotty history of like doing good things and bad things, and at one point he died, and people were only ever talking about the good things, and I started talking about the bad things. Okay. Yeah, I ended up on a uh, Twitter thread of, like, the headshots and addresses of 
people who were talking shit about this guy. Yikes. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and by headshots, I mean, like, my profile picture. It wasn't like <laughs> they hired a PI, but, like, lending it the sense of being a portfolio, there's a certain patina to it, you know? That's a, that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are we ready to start on some topics? Sure. Yes. Uh, Kev, your topic, your first topic is ephemeral digital music. Yeah, so this is just a weird thing I've noticed recently. And I noticed this because there's an old game that I'm a big fan of, and it has a like an active community of modders and everything. And the game and the engine that the mods are written in uses midis or medis for the audio. And I was big into this game like years ago on a Windows system. You know, I have the like soundtrack memorized and then all the different mods had pop music tunes in MIDI format and everything. And I'm revisiting this game on a Macintosh computer now, an Apple MacBook. And all the music sounds totally different because it's using like Apple MIDI samples. Yeah. Hmm. Now I'm in this like mental state where I'm like, did I imagine that song? Did I imagine it sounded like this? Maybe ephemeral is not the best word to describe this experience. <laughs> is the music the same, but just like the sound font is different? Yeah, that's that's correct. Have you tried to yeah. find like the old Windows sound font that you were using back then? I have not. That's a good idea. Maybe even track it down on YouTube, depending on how popular this thing is. It also gives the game like a completely different experience playing it because some of like the pop music midis just sound terrible with different samples. Yeah. Some scenes I'll be playing and I'll be like, wow, I don't remember this being so cringe. Yeah. The trumpet sample is like just jarring compared to the older samples. Despite the, the word general in general midi, like chances are the composers wrote it to sound good on one particular sound chip. Probably the Roland MP MT32, actually. Mm -hmm. But then they have to play it on everything else, and like some sound chips do certain genres better than others. Yeah, so this then made me start thinking if there's any other music or genres of digital music like this that has the same kind of ephemeral properties. And then I was thinking about how like a lot of modern soundtracks they're basically like dynamic soundtracks right like they record all these like orchestral tracks and then depending on the mood they want to capture in a scene they like you know they bring in the strings more or they bring in more drums or piano yeah and so so now there's like a whole subgenre of youtube which will go in and like capture the gameplay soundtracks because later the like official soundtracks they publish on Spotify or on CD or whatever don't capture that same feel as like the actual live game soundtracks. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I love a generative soundtrack, even when it's mostly composed, just but like patched together. My go-to example is always the Monkey Island 2 soundtrack, which... It does a bunch of interesting stuff, but like the thing I'm thinking of specifically is when you're in the tunnels in the end game, there's this piece that is pasted together from like individually composed patterns, but they kind of ripple, never really quite loops as far as I can tell. Or if it does, it loops after like half an hour of just different riffs on the same ideas. It's, it's really neat. 
The other thing that came to mind when you were talking about ephemeral music, there's a game, uh, APB. I think it, I don't know if APB exists anymore, but one of the features that it had at the time, it was a, it was a um, cops versus robbers kind of. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing about this. It was, yeah, team versus team game, and one of the things you could do is you could compose. Effectively, it was a, a ringtone, but it would play when you killed somebody. You they would hear your jingle. Oh. <laughs> And I really like the idea that, like, you're haunted by this jingle and you're like, is that, a, is that a pop song? I have to know what this is. And in order to hear it again, you have to, be, you have to track this guy down and be killed by him again. Oh, man. That, so that's a great example of this kind of phenomenon. And, and that's, that's a funny experience. That's like a kill cam, but it's a kill jingle or something. That, right. I need that brought back in some FPSs here. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that actually sounds safer than... The systems that a lot of FPSs have with like tags and sprays and stuff, just letting someone either program in audio within the game or even just like upload audio seems like a kind of interesting idea. Yeah, allowing players to really kind of like mess with the audio or uh, compose their own things in game for other players to hear seems like a really interesting kind of take that I haven't really seen in. Uh, whereas a lot of games will have things like you know, in-game, like, tags or sprays or things like that, allowing audio cool approach. Yeah, yeah, like, they can't draw a penis in the, uh, I guess they could draw it in the note grid, but you'd have to have a real talent to recognize it by listening. (laughs) Okay, I got a couple of questions there. First, that begs the question of, if you run a bitmap of a penis into an audio file, what does that sound like, right? Uh, (laughs) Somebody figure that out sometimes. And then, uh, Jim, do you have any uh, kill ringtones that have stuck in your head and haunted you? Did you play 8BP to experience? I didn't actually play it. So I've done a lot of weird audio experiments in my life. Uh, and I can think of two ways that you could upload an image of a penis into, or convert it into an audio. Uh, and neither one would be super recognizable versus any other image. I, and I'm, I'm like debating in my head whether or not I want to go into the details of those two methods of converting <laughs> an image to audio. I think I think they're not worth it. Maybe I'll uh, create a topic specifically for that someday. Would one of them be like uh, spectrography? Yeah, one of them would be treating the image as a spectral map with X being time, Y being frequency, and then the luminosity of the pixel being volume. And the other one is just literally treating the bitmap as an audio sample and the reason that sounds like anything at all is that bitmaps have a specific I think they even call it a pitch in some image formats meaning like each row is going to be effectively one wave cycle and chances are the kinds of frequencies that you typically play audio files at that is going to be a, a pitch that's within the range of human hearing. That number of samples across. A waveform of X samples repeated Y times with whatever changes there are from row to row in the image. You got me. I told the story. I told, I described both things. I do know, at least for just taking images and converting them directly into audio, the software synthesizer Serum allows you to take an image and import it as a wavetable. I've never actually used this just because it doesn't seem like a very useful feature, but the way that I believe it works is I think it creates a histogram, uh, the colors in the image, and then you can sweep across 
layers of the image and it will kind of play the histogram. That's interesting. I'm definitely interested in hearing that. I mean, hopefully this isn't the case. Hopefully they figured out how to make it be interesting. But like between these two techniques, you can load a thousand images into like a, 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 a spectrogram converter and they'll all sound like a spectrogram converted image. Mm-hmm. It just has a sound to it. What it's good for is like hiding messages in, in, in podcasts if you're running an ARG. And same with uh, the other technique of loading loading the image directly as a sample. It just has a sound to it. Mm-hmm. It's the same way if you like if you load up an executable uh, as a sample and play it. It's just good. it sounds like an executable. You can just tell. How would you describe oh. the sound of an executable? Yeah, I might need to know. Oh, I mean, it's playing sounds that are not natural sounds. Like playing r- random data as sounds, you have unnaturally high frequency characteristics, like the the most standout uh, feature of them. Completely unnatural, broad spectrum high frequency data. It's like how white noise is unnatural versus something with a more na- with a more natural fall off. There's like a screeching white noise or like a a modem. Yeah, a modem a modem connection sound is actually pretty close. Yeah, which would make sense because that's another digital format that's over an audio medium yeah have you ever owned owned a computer that used cassettes as storage no i never have i had a commodore 128 but had had a floppy drive i did create an audio file meant to be loaded onto a commodore 64 cassette drive for the arg oh really yeah this is a somewhat tangential but there was a video that i remember watching several years ago of someone just with a live spectrogram of their audio where they were just spelling the word minimum using just their voice, because <laughs> writing minimum in cursive doesn't loop back over itself. That's pretty impressive. If you know what the frequencies are, you could kind of make out what they were trying to do just by listening to it. Oh, I see. So were they were they watching the watching themselves draw it? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That's a way better idea than the one I put in Frog Fractions 2 called Barber Pole Position which was a, a, a four-player racing game where every player has a microphone and every player is given a different pitch to match and their car goes faster if they sing that pitch. I don't remember that, but I really like that. I struggled with that game for some reason, Jim. I'm not going to lie. I must be like... It honestly was probably that like I didn't have great pitch detection. I know a lot of people who had better luck like loading a theremin app onto their phone and using that did that have a byproduct of like ephemeral music of like people humming along yes that was the intent was to get four people all singing cacophonously i originally made that game for a jam and i did have the opportunity to witness one set of four people do a complete race and it was glorious it was just one of the worst sounds you've ever heard in your life. That sounds great. I've never like had the pleasure of seeing someone's Twitch stream of their four-player barber pole position race, but that would be incredible. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Well, your topic is being a guest on a podcast that you normally listen to is a weird experience because it feels like you're not supposed to talk. Yeah, so this is something I definitely noticed the last time that I was on the podcast. Especially with this sort of podcast where it's just people talking, it feels very awkward to just kind of insert yourself into a conversation, especially if you're used to hearing 
this specific format and three strangers having a conversation that you get, don't get to be a part of. Right. It does feel kind of weird sometimes that this format of podcast is pretty much just like eavesdropping on a private conversation between three people. Yeah. So here's our opportunity to talk about parasocial relationships, which are, in case the listeners are unfamiliar, when you are paying attention to the lives of celebrities, it kind of makes you feel like you're their friend, even though they don't know you. Mm-hmm. And the way that internet structures incentives right now, at least, there's an incentive for the, the, the celebrity to play that up and, and play into it deliberately. And the result is very weird social interactions, like people not knowing their boundaries. I haven't actually personally experienced this to a great extent because I'm not that famous. Like I have had a few people ask to be on the show and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's, that's good. But I can imagine if I had 10 times as many followers, it could get to be untenable. And I don't know how I would handle that. At that, at that point, hopefully I would be like also making 10 times as much money and then I could hire somebody to read my Twitter for me. Any of the people that have asked to be on the podcast, have any of them been on the podcast? Yeah, uh, I think two or three people have been on the podcast that way. I So far, I haven't said no. Jim, when you frame the parasocial relationship like that, from your perspective, and it gets creepy because people have crossed the boundaries, they think the celebrity or the, the star or whatever is their friend, that seems kind of negative. But the reversal is that, like, there's a lot of lonely people out there and this podcast boom is giving a lot of people, you know, at least sense of like friendship with this star. Yeah. I feel like that can be framed as a positive experience. Yeah. But also that's debatable because that need being fulfilled that way might be preventing them from going out and making real friends. Mm -hmm. That is a fair point. That's interesting. I, I'm as guilty as anybody. Like, I listen to lots of shows and never DM these people, but sometimes I want to, you know? Sometimes I'm, like, trying to, you know, if, if this is an interesting tidbit that you missed on the show or whatever. I think maybe the most interesting aspect of parasocial relationships, if you are a fan of somebody, then they are also a fan of you, and you f- you both find out about it. That's basically instantly becoming friends. Like suddenly you're like, oh, we're friends now. Which a much easier process of making friends than actually making friends in real life, like with normal people. Hmm. And I think what's happening there is you have two parasocial relationships that kind of like just are fitting together. They're, they click together and become a real relationship. That does seem really interesting because I imagine part of that is each of the two people knowing a lot about the other person and thinking that the other person doesn't know about them. And then once they meet, they kind of have a idea of what the other person is that kind of meshes with what they're actually experiencing. Yeah, it might also be something along the lines of people tend to hang out with people in a similar place on the social ladder as they are. As they are. Mm-hmm. Like people, for whatever reason, want to hang out with like people who are about as famous as they are and not more or less. It's weird. This isn't just me. Like, I've noticed a lot of this happening. The other phenomenon, the converse of your 
experience of like not feeling like you you shouldn't be talking on a show where you, that you normally listen to. One thing that also happens is if you're listening to a, to a podcast made by your friends, you may want to jump in because these are your friends and they're just having a conversation. Now that you mentioned that, I, there have been a couple times just listening to topic lords where I've wanted to be like, oh, I have input on whatever they're talking about. Yeah. One thing that's a bummer about this format is that since there's different guests on every week, you can't do the thing where like a listener writes in with new information and then the th same three people have a conversation about that response. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I'm always a little bummed out when I hear other podcasts doing that. It's like, I could have had that if I just picked two friends instead of insisting on having all my friends be on the show. Have you considered having like a constant co-host or anything? That was the original plan. I would pick two people and do a show with those two people. But when I was asking around about who would be interested, so many people were interested that I was just like, let's just have a rotating cast and see how it goes. And I thought maybe eventually I would settle on a single set of people, but it didn't happen. I guess it still might. Maybe episode 100. I, I kind of expected you to say that not enough people were going to be interested. I, I think it's cool that like a lot of people want to be on the podcast. I feel like one of the advantages of me running this show is that it gives me an excuse to have fun conversations with my friends, which as an introvert, I kind of don't normally seek that out a lot of the time. Maybe the other people who come on the show are, are the same way or similar. Like, oh, good, this is an excuse to have a conversation with Jim kind of a situation. I like the rotating cast, Jim, a lot. I think it it adds like a lot of freshness to each episode, exposes me to people I may not have discovered otherwise. So there's like a virality component to it. Yeah. I like putting together two of my friends who have never met mm -hmm. to see what happens. Yeah, I'm already DMing uh, Quill right now, making plans for this weekend. This is, this is going great. Nice. Let's start our own podcast. We can't talk about topics, though. <laughs> that's right no topics that's that's why you signed the nda uh are you ready for another topic yes yes my topic is an update on bug mars i'm actually not sure i talked about the first bug mars news on this podcast so in december of last year i got an email from a couple who wanted to start a cricket farm uh, and sell cricket protein, and they wanted to name their business Bug Mars. They wanted my stamp of approval on this, and were like also wondering how I, how they could convey that this was actually a Twin Beard approved operation. And I suggested that just have a little like stamp that says Twin Beard approved on it, and I thought that would be cute. I just love the idea of this tiny company being named after a throwaway joke in one of my games. So, did they get the name from Frog Fractions? Oh yeah, that would be incredibly weird. Of like, yeah, we wanted to call it Bug Mars, and so we did a trademark search, and your game came up. No, they were they were naming it that because they liked Frog Fraction. Their company is Bug Mars, or they're putting out a game. No, it's Bug a Mars it's a company. They're 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 literally running a cricket farm, or I don't think it's okay. I don't I don't know if it started yet, but they're they're spinning up a cricket farm. Oh, so it's it's not even like a game company. It's a legit bug farm. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. Although, like, a, a Stardew Valley kind of a game would be pretty cool. Have you considered 
trying to collaborate with them to make some sort of bug farming game. Uh, no, that's a that's a very interesting idea. I think you should definitely give them the endorsement, Jim, because that's wild. Oh, I already have. I did. What are they going to do with these crickets? What's the plan there? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it, they're selling cricket protein, like cricket powder. Delicious. Yeah. They have a website up at bugmars.com, and probably by the time this episode airs, there will be the Twinbeard stamp of approval on bugmars.com. Also... The most recent email I got was from at bugmars.com. Are they selling cricket flour yet, or is it still in like a kind of planning stage right now? Honestly, I was expecting that they would just start selling immediately as soon as I gave them the approval. I, I had assumed that like we have this idea for a cricket farm. I figured they already had like cages full of crickets mm. ready to go, but it looks like they're still looking for funding to buy crickets. I, you know what? I'm not sure what they're looking for funding for. They might be trying to become the Amazon of cricket protein. Well, this is definitely a hot space right now. Alternative protein, synthetic protein. Yeah. This is a space venture capital is very interested in. My own personal experience with cricket protein is I walked up to a booth in a cafeteria that had... Actually, this I, I basically put this in the Hat DLC. And they had uh, cricket flour cookies. And they had jerk crickets. And I looked at the jerk crickets and was like, I'm not touching those. Uh, and then I tried one of the cricket flour cookies and it wasn't very good. But not in a way that I could say was like, that's because of crickets. Like it might have just been ba a bad cookie, even if they'd made it with regular flour. So with Bugmars, have the people from the company said anything about like maybe you getting free product once they actually launch? <laughs> no. I'm sure they would send me a care package, though, if I asked. I'm not sure I want it, though. That's the problem. I could accept it and then and redistribute it to my friends who are more uh, a little bit more adventurous. I definitely think that that alternative protein, like I think a cricket burger is probably uh, better for the environment than a beef burger. Yeah, a, a couple of years ago, I had something that had cricket flour in it. And I, I have had a similar reaction to you that I couldn't tell if this was psychosomatic or if I was actually tasting this, but it tasted vaguely shellfishy. Oh. And it's actually something I'm kind of aware of with insect processing, that apparently insect food allergies are relatively common. And there's a lot of overlap between crustacean allergies and certain insect allergies. So. I wasn't sure if it was like my knowledge of that that was making it taste vaguely shellfishy, or if it maybe it actually was. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to know. I also want to amend the idea. Uh, I think it's more ethical to eat a cricket burger. I'm actually not sure that's true if you're like shipping the cricket protein across the country versus eating a locally sourced beef burger. Those logistics are the real consideration in the environmental impact of food sources. A lot of it goes to the shipping. That's completely underestimated. Yeah. I should add that the only food experience I've had with insects was at this place in Oakland called Agave, and they had like seasoned crickets uh, that they served as kind of like a side dish. So they're like dried seasoned crickets kind of like cricket chips or something. Right. It was pretty delicious. I'm not going to lie. It was good. I'll get down with some bugs. I'm glad there are people out there who are going to save the world when I don't. <laughs> what were they seasoned with? 
Uh, I'm not sure. Some kind of, I want to say chili powder, but it wasn't like chilies. Just some seasoning salt. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe cricket and other insect meat, I guess it's meat, is better suited for its more savory things as opposed to, like, the thing that I had, I'm pretty sure, was some sort of cookie or bar. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. For this topic, we're going to be watching Dancing in the Street by David Bowie and Mick Jagger at quarter speed. <laughs> I should give a disclaimer that I cannot watch this video without completely cracking up. This is not a problem. What's wrong with listening to somebody enjoy themselves for 12 minutes? So you want to click the little gear, set playback speed to 0.25. You want to mute the audio because YouTube's time stretching is terrible. And then uh, let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. Ready. All right, I'm going to count down from three and on zero, we, we hit play. Three, two, one, play. Oh, we got a brick wall. Brick wall, folks. A white and beige haggard brick wall. Yeah. Something off to the right side. Yeah, it looks like a SCP of some kind. I was going to say rolled up carpet, but that, that also works. Wow. Could be a painter's tarp or something. That was a very long six seconds. <laughs> I want to know in the oh wow here's the brick wall again in the editing room whose idea was it let's just open with six seconds of a brick wall and then cut to some feet dancing and then more brick wall some terrible white sneakers yeah I'm not sure what brand those are it kind of seems like the whole video has a slightly yellowish tinge and I'm trying to figure out if that's an artistic decision or maybe this is just like a really low quality version of this video. I was wondering if that was the video or if that it's that I'm running flux. All right, here's a leprechaun bouncing into the frame. <laughs> a leprechaun with a mullet. Yeah, I like this baggy shirt a lot. I want one of those. What color would you say that is? Like a lightish green, like a maybe a sea foam. <laughs> yeah, seems about right. Oh, he's so fancy, emoting so hard. <laughs> It kind of seems like he's trying to warn us of something right now. Yeah. He does have a panicked look in his eye, like he's uh, in fight <laughs> or flight response mode. Yeah. Warning us about all the dancing that's happening in the street. St. <laughs> Vitus dance is going to consume us all. I'm actually now curious because that last... Oh, it changed. I, I was going to say the, the last cut to the shoes made the shoes look almost like highlighter yellow. It was more yellow than before. It looks like David Bowie's wearing an MC Hammer Pants <laughs> outfit here with a white trench coat. And underneath, like, floral print jumpsuit. This seems like the sort of music video that was made on absolutely no budget, which is weird because it's David Bowie and Mick Jagger. Yeah, it seems uh, they just pointed a camera at a wall and was like, okay, guys, do your thing. Oh, but we have a, we have a, a crossfade to seen outside and not only that uh the camera is on a crane i think so that's definitely where 90 percent of the, the video's budget was renting that crane what are those lights in the background is it, it looks like a ufo landing or something yeah or like a, a row of car headlights where they yeah like the, the race is about to start it actually might specifically be a row of car headlights the way that they're kind of in groups of two like that do you think there for decoration or do you think it's supposed to be a race about to start over there <laughs> i mean they're nowhere near the race if a race is supposed to start over there but 
the song isn't called Racing in the Street. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They may have taken the budget for this music video and spent it on cocaine. All the comments, uh, if you scroll down, all the comments, the YouTube comments are about how no one wanted to admit that they were gay for each other. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it was a deliberate choice or just like, this is what we've got to work with. But as I recall, the lyrics in this song are about everybody dancing. Yeah. But it's actually just these two dancing. (laughs) Maybe it's like Gangnam style where it turns out the guy is actually just stunning himself on a playground instead of at the beach. I mean, they are the only two people we've seen so far, so it has been everybody, technically. That's true. Unless the the people in those cars get out of the cars and start dancing. Did you think they lined up all the cars themselves? I like to imagine the cars are something more, uh, something darker, like it's a sane asylum orderlies coming to track these guys down. As right. They- Dancing in this abandoned warehouse. I was thinking that was the budget thing again, where because of the crane, they had no money for lighting, and they realized that's nighttime, so they just need to grab a bunch of cars and use those as instead of studio lights. Yeah. Oh, what be- what beverage is mixed with slamming here? Yeah, yeah. We have this whole shot that's just like, let's just spend ten seconds on Mick Jagger drinking a beer. I feel like that was like a botched product placement shot or something. You couldn't make a label out on it. Right, right. That's what I was trying to figure out. I was trying to see if there was some sort of like beer or soda brand on it, but it looked like a plain silver can. Right, right. It looks like a theatrical beer. I don't know what you call the back before product placement was the norm and they made generic products so that you wouldn't get sued for using a trademark in your movie. Also, back when you had to like have extremely fake looking money because filming money would trigger counterfeiting laws isn't that still true money in movies is much more realistic now so it de facto isn't like they don't prosecute you anymore are there certain laws around you can't have actual money it can look very similar but it's fake money yeah i'm not sure you also have an acknowledge that they've moved back inside into a stairwell that again does not look like a studio there's like holes in the wall. Yeah. It looks like a squatter flop house or something <laughs> for uh, for being called dancing in the street. They're sure spending a lot of time in a flop house. Dancing in a stairwell is uh, would also be a good song title. <laughs> uh these guys they're just enjoying themselves so much. I feel like this was such a weird song for them to cover even when they covered this, you know. Oh, was this a cover? Yeah, I believe uh I want to say Aretha Franklin was the original, but it might be like... Oh, that sounds right, actually. Yeah, I think I might have... I think I might know that one. I have to correct that. The original's Martha and the Vandellas. That's Aretha Franklin knockoff, probably. (laughs) That's the dance move that David Bowie is doing in the background. Jazz hands. It's like jazz hands or something. Yeah, yeah, he's... Mick's doing, like, the King Tut or something. Right. He's just shaking his bracelets. There are parts of this video that look like they were somewhat choreographed, but a lot of it seems just the two of them running around each other. Yeah, and probably the choreographed parts were like them taking for 30 seconds to say, okay, I'll do this, you do this. I can't figure out, right now are they inside or outside? I was about to ask, what's that background? Like, it looks like there's like corrugated metal on the top half of the screen, but 
Aside from that, they're in a void. Dancing in the void also wasn't as catchy. <laughs> Dancing in a void with corrugated metal on the top half of the screen. This video feels a lot darker at this speed and without any audio. Yeah. <laughs> kind of reminded me of David Bowie's character from uh, Twin Peaks, <laughs> which is dark and mysterious. And now I'm wondering if this video is like canon Twin Peaks. Like when his character disappears, he ended up in in this. <laughs> also, now what a... it definitely looks like there's more light than there was earlier. So I'm assuming... Part of me wants to say that this was filmed earlier, but it kind of makes it seem like they were just filming all night. Yeah, they just shot shot in one night, and as soon as it was day, like, we gotta make do with what we have. This pan is glitching out. Yeah. Yeah, what is that stutter pan? I wonder if that's an artifact of the of the time stretching, of, like, the playing at a lower speed or what. And a freeze frame on a couple of butts. Fade out. That's it. Fade to white. We watched the whole thing. Wow. But there's still five seconds left. What could happen in these next five seconds? Is it is it just going to stay white? Oh, Is it going to nope. stay white? Oh. No, it fades to white and then fades to black. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's going to fade to white again? No, that's the end. I wonder if that's part of the original video, the, the fade and then refade. Yeah. I feel like it is. Yeah. So while we were watching, I looked it up. They were filming at a place called Millennium Mills, which is a derelict flower mill. Yeah, so you know how sometimes they'll shoot action movies in like a, a ironworks. It it would definitely not be as cool to have like flour flowing in the background of of these action shots as molten iron is. It's also appeared in a surprising number of music videos. This particular mill. Yeah, music videos by Arctic Monkeys, Snow Patrol, Coldplay, The Smiths, Orbital. I wonder if all those bands were thinking like, you know what? We got to get that dancing in the streets warehouse, guys. That's how we're going to make it. We need that in this video. I would if I lived in the area. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Yes. Yes. Well, your topic is, if you were to meet an adult who has never even heard of video games, what would you give them to demonstrate what they are? You're not allowed to interact with them in any other way. So like, you can't talk to them about what video games are? Yeah, so this is something that I was just kind of thinking about as a thought exercise when I was writing an email to my friend the other day. Game controls have become standardized in a way that a lot of games are bad at explaining things that I feel like are very basic. Uh, things like how to hold a controller, even. I was trying to think of like what game you could give to someone and what game system you could give to someone that has no knowledge of what a video game is, has never seen a video game, where they could figure out what it is and they could play it. I thought of one example. What's that? Uh, so the one they thought of would be Tetris on the Game Boy. Oh, okay. I have an anecdote here. My mother is turning 70, and she just, on her own accord, recently got into gaming. And she's into, like, browser-based puzzle games. Is she going to radcade.com? <laughs> Uh, I'm embarrassed to say she has not hit it up yet, uh, Jim. <laughs> okay. Right. I don't think we're catering to her, uh, her taste yet. Okay, all right. But more broadly, answer Quill's point, I would suggest Candy Crush. I feel like you could fly into a remote jungle tribe or something 
hand them an iPhone with Candy Crush loaded up, and they would figure it out in like twenty minutes and be playing it. Yeah, and then they would one of them would become a whale and spend their entire <laughs> life savings. Absolutely. That's interesting because I didn't even consider a game on a touch screen, but that would kind of eliminate the issue of like someone figuring out controls. The reason why I still think that Tetris might be better is because with Tetris, once you figure out that you're supposed to clear lines, you, you kind of know how well you're doing. Whereas with a game like Candy Crush, if you clear candy, then more candy just falls. I mean, my experience with Match 3s is that it's very hard to do anything on purpose, including telling how well you're doing. And Tetris also has the advantage of the first time you play it, if you have no idea what you're doing, pieces will just drop down and you will notice that the game ends when they reach the top. So it kind of also has this like implicit, by watching you lose for the first time, you understand what the rules of the game are. Yeah, I was going to suggest Pong, just because like that was explicitly designed and market tested to be a game that was everybody's first video game. But I actually think that probably modern casual games might be a little bit even more market tested. Like Candy Crush is a great example. I would, just for personal reasons, want to figure out a way to not expose people to that particular disease. There's got to still be casual games out there that are approachable and not addiction driven yeah not built to like be as addictive as, and exploitative as possible but this is a hypothetical anyway so like maybe maybe it would be bejeweled part of the reason why i originally thought of this was i forget what it was it was either a podcast i was listening to or maybe a video i was watching that was talking about accessibility of various art forms where things like movies if you decide to really get into movies you can start with the best things and then kind of work your way down to the less good things. But meanwhile, things yeah. like literature, you're usually going to start pretty low and then work your way up to more complicated or more complex things. And I feel like video games are very similar to that, but they also have a mechanical barrier where you have to physically get good at immersing yourself in this art in order to even experience it. This conversation reminds me of the educational user experience design Nintendo put into like the first Mario, right? Where Oh sure. They limited movement only to the right. So a curious player would pick up the controller, push buttons. They'd see Mario move. They'd le quickly learn they couldn't yeah, Mario couldn't go to the left, could only go to the right. And then, you know, that first set of bricks and the Goomba, they had meticulously designed. So, like, if you go to jump over the Goomba, you're going to accidentally jump into the first brick and discover that a mushroom pops out. If you miss, you're going to die and you're going to immediately start over and then learn not to hit that Goomba, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, a kind of a masterpiece of onboarding that was extremely rare back in the day. Like, back in the, the mid-80s, nobody was putting that level of care into uh, into game design. And that was really the Nintendo's magic, was it would actually be really difficult financially for any other company to do that on the NES because Nintendo had such a stranglehold on on cartridge sales. But they were in a position to, and decided to make it a priority to, like, created a, a, a development process that really centered quality of design and quality of onboarding. And it shows like, if you look at, uh, 
NES game budgets, games like Super Mario Brothers 3 had like eight to ten people working on it for two years, which is ludicrous for the time. Wow. And and it's definitely uh one of the most polished games on that system by far. The thing about that fine crafted educational experience of that first Mario level is that educated a whole player base for a whole genre right it's like once you played that you're like oh i understand platforming games now, yeah right well platforming games didn't really exist in the, on the same level at the time like all those games came to be because mario was so popular yeah i feel like a lot of games before the nes were very arcadey and kind of like high score infinite level driven super mario brothers seems like a game that is really built around trying to get to the end of this thing, which I feel like was also probably pretty novel when it came out. Yeah, yeah, that was still a new idea. There was a Super Mario Brothers arcade game, but I feel like that was an idea that was born on the NES, born on home consoles where you're not paying a quarter to play it. Do you mean the original Mario Brothers game or the one where it's, it resembles Super Mario Brothers? Versus Super Mario Brothers is what mm. I'm talking about, the arcade game that's Super Mario Brothers, but made worse and crueler. Don't they intersperse <laughs> levels from Japan's Mario 2 or America's Lost Levels? I'm actually pretty sure that Versus Super Mario Brothers came first. Okay. Uh, and that they took levels from Versus Super Mario Brothers and put them in Lost Levels. But yeah, they definitely designed new levels to be harder. They did things like, you know, they took out most of the one-ups in the game. They took out all the known exploits in the game. Speed up the timer, you know, that sort of thing. Lots of changes to make it much, much more difficult. What were we talking about? What was this? What is it? What is this topic even? Introducing people to, to video games. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's kind of funny that this conversation wound up back at Mario 1 1 because, uh, as I mentioned, I came up with this topic while I was composing an email to a friend the other day. And the email was actually part of me explaining why I thought Mario 1-1 was an interesting way to introduce people to video games for essentially the reasons that we've discussed. I guess the West slash the United States was at the time somewhat jaded with video games, given the crash and everything that happened with Atari in 1983 or so. Super Mario Brothers had the double kind of uh, job of selling a product, but also explaining why the product is fun and this is a medium that is worth pursuing yeah yeah that's a lots a large burden to bear that's why he needed uh robbie the robot to help it's impossible to try it now because everybody knows what mario is and they at least know about mario and jumping but like i, I think it'd be interesting to to see an adult who had no experience with video games that's the other thing that's hard to find and handing them an nes controller what would they do with super mario brothers like would they even be interested that's a much harder trick, I think, is like, would this be interesting enough compared to all the other things they could be doing with their lives? Yeah, who is this hypothetical person that we would be running this experiment on? Is this, yeah, uh, can we lock them in the room until they finish it? Amish folk, isolated, you know, Amazonian tribe members. I could see like maybe a, like an Amish person on Romspringa or someone that escaped North Korea. Yeah. Because, like, is this, is this individual even familiar with television technology? Wouldn't they just be blown away by that? Right. Can they look at a flat surface and see an image? Or, or are they going to just be confused by that? 
especially with something like the NES that ran on older CRT televisions, where I think like dogs and other things, not to compare these people to dogs, but certain animals can't actually see the image. They can only see the scan lines and even kind of makes me wonder if these people would not even recognize that they're looking at an image. The persistence of vision, I don't think, is something that changes like culturally. They they would see uh, the same quality of image that we would, but like I know my son had to learn how to see things on on paper. Hmm. You know, like it, that's not natural to just look at a flat surface and see an image on it and interpret that as analogous to something in the real world. That's something you have to learn, and it might well be something you have to learn young. There's like a class of mental illnesses that affect that kind of neural process. I think it's called aphasia or something, but it's like you can be afflicted with this and you fail to recognize things you're seeing. So you, you'd see like, you know, a person and you would your brain would think it's like some other object that you've recognized, like a block of cheese or something. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's like uh oh what's the what's the thing where you confuse colors for other senses? Oh uh yeah, that's like synesthesia, synesthesia or something. Synesthesia, yeah. thank you. Yeah, that's like synesthesia but for ideas. Correct. There's there's an interesting book on this kind of stuff. It's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Oh, I love that book. I don't remember that section though. To mention another book that kind of delves into this sort of thing. Uh there's a book by the name of Phantoms in the Brain by V.S. Ramachandran, uh, where he kind of goes through different interesting mental anomalies that he's encountered in his career. A couple of them they remember were there was one that was, I believe a woman had change blindness, where she could see things normally, but she couldn't see them transition from one state to another. So if she was, say, pouring a glass of water, she could see the glass, she could see the water, but she couldn't see the level go up. There's another one that he talked about that was orientation blindness, which is where again someone could see. The example I gave that that he gave was a like a letterbox and giving someone an envelope, and they can put the envelope in the box, but they couldn't tell you whether the slot in the letterbox was horizontal or vertical. <laughs> wow! Yeah, the process of putting an envelope in a slot is so automatic that. I would I totally believe that it's it's a completely different part of your brain doing that than the one that consciously notices whether or not uh the slot is the orientation of the slot. Uh and that's all the time we have for topic lords. Kev, is if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh follow me on Twitter at Kev Zettler. And Quill, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I'm in the Topic Lords Discord. Otherwise, if you will get in contact with me directly, Go by the lake and whisper a secret to the snail. <laughs> but you have to wait because the snail is very slow. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. That was fun. Good catching up, Jim. Hope to see you in person soon. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. 
patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.